Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Two and a half years from now, if you're still with us, if the Lord, uh, if the Lord uh, graces you and gives you continued life in this world, and you're still here in in uh, part of this church family and, and uh, able to, uh, to take this in and, and to uh, study along with us and travel along through, through Scripture with us. You will have uh, gone through the whole of Scripture, not every detail, obviously, but uh, trying to hit some of those highlights. We're following with the, uh, with the uh, Gospel Project curriculum, which we use in our children's program, and uh, so that uh, we're all kind of traveling together which is kind of nice. You like to travel? Yeah. Doug and Glenda just got back from their six-month uh, trip. Uh, they were hoping to be here today, but they had a battery, a battery issue with their car. So, But they are back, but uh, they've been traveling. I love to travel. And uh, it's kind of neat that we can kind of take this journey through Scripture together. And so today we are uh, in the wilderness with Israel, uh, they had rejected God's promise to take the land, and God said because of their lack of faith and their disobedience, they would, uh, that entire generation would, would spend their whole lives in the wilderness, and, and that's, what, uh, that's what happened. Uh, but today, we're, uh, as we come into Numbers 22, uh, things have changed, and uh, uh, that uh, generation is pretty much passed off the scene. Uh, Moses at this time is still alive, and Joshua and Caleb are still alive. We know that, uh, but um, but uh, yeah, the generation is uh, is past, and they are on the uh, threshold of the promised land once again. I want to go back to chapter 21, if we could, and just kind of pick up there. Uh, the first three verses in chapter one, uh, 21 says, "When the Canaanite, the king of." Uh, Arad, who lived in Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by way of uh, Atherim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called uh, Hor- Hormah. And uh, Horma was uh, the location, and you probably wouldn't pick up on this. I, I had, you know, in my reading came across this, because there's so many place names and so on, right? And, it, and it, it does get hard sometimes. But Horma was a location where 40 years earlier they had tried to enter the land after rejecting God's promise to enter the land. Remember when they, God said, go in, and the, spy, and the two of the 12 spies said, yeah, we can do this. And the people said, no, we can't do that. There's giants in the land. The land will devour us. We can't do this. And God was very uh, angry with them because they refused to enter in by faith. And when they found that out, they said, okay, we'll, we'll go in, we'll go in. And, and, and Moses said, don't do this. <laughs> you know, you had your opportunity and you missed it. Do not do this. And they went anyway. And they suffered significant losses and defeat. And it was at Horma, if, if you... Uh, uh, notice there in Numbers uh, uh, 21 and uh, Numbers 14:45 says, "Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma." So it's kind of like uh, that was then. This is now, and this is a new day. The tides have turned because this time the Israelites are experiencing. Uh, victory in their, in their battles. And so uh, it's a new day. And it says they sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. This is in Numbers 21 as well. They asked for passage through the land, and the, and the, uh, the Amorites refused. Uh, the Amorites were the descendants of Canaan. You remember from uh, Noah's uh, son's uh, grandson, Canaan. Um, the Amorites were descendants of Canaan, and they were highlanders or hillmen, uh, they were known by some different names by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The early Babylonian inscriptions uh, included all of, of Syria, including Palestine, 
uh, as the land of the Amorites. And even in, in uh, Hebrew scriptures, in Deuteronomy, um, the mountains of Judea are called the mountains or the mount of the Amorites. So these were a significant people. And the, and the, uh, the battle that uh, subsequently uh, Israel was engaged in and won was a significant battle. It's not a small victory at all. And uh, as we come to the, to the text today in Numbers 22, uh, this is relevant because um, uh, this is not happening in a way that's not take, being taken note of, all right? This is all being observed. Uh, of course, God sees everything, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the other inhabitants of the land. They're very, very... Uh, intently watching all of these things because this huge uh, nation of people, mobile nation, is on their doorstep and, and God is giving them victory. And they're, they're right there. They're camped at the foot of uh, the mountains of Moab, on the plains of Moab, across from Jericho. Okay. And uh, Numbers 21 says Israel took possession of their cities, meaning uh, the cities of the Amorites that were located on the, uh, the uh, uh, east of the Jordan there. And that doesn't necessarily, and it says they settled in them. Numbers 21, 24, and 25 says Israel, upon defeating those en enemies, settled in those places. That doesn't necessarily mean that they immediately settled in those places. But we find out later in Numbers chapter uh, 32 that the um, uh, two and a half uh, tribes, uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, uh, uh, kind of uh, negotiated with the other tribes that they would help them go in and take the land if they could come back and settle in that area in what's called the land of Gilead. And that seemed okay with the tribes, and Moses gave his approval, and God gave his approval to that, and that's what happened. So they ended up settling in that area. And this is all becomes part of the conquered land, uh, the land that God had promised to a Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to uh, the <coughs> their descendants. Um, Numbers 22, that's where we're at today. And that, what we just talked about, is some of the context. So coming into Numbers 22 and reading from Numbers 22, uh, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. They're watching, right? You would be too. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. If you can try to get a sense for what it would look like if you were able to climb a mountain and look down on a people uh, organized for war in the millions. The estimate's around two and a half million people. Uh, counting, counting women and children, of course, but probably uh, 600,000 armed men. And that would be a pretty scary sight. It says there, this horde, this is what the uh, um, Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, verse 4, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab, at that time sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at, uh, at Pethor, Pethor, how do you say that? I'm not really sure. Which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. So once again, here they are, camped uh, on the plains of Moab, <coughs> and uh, the whole... The, um, uh, Moabites, uh, Moab was a descendant of Lot. The nation of the Moabites were descendants of Lot. You may recall from uh, Genesis chapter mm, 18, 19, 19, uh, that Lot had uh, two uh, sons named Moab and Ammon. And they kind of uh, hung together, and they, uh, the descendants 
of, uh, of those descendants of Lot, which became known as the Moabites and the Ammonites. And here, uh, uh, Balak is a king of the Moabites. And you may recall back in Genesis, we didn't actually cover this, but you're supposed to be reading anyway. And when Abraham was walking in the land and the herds and the flocks became, were so numerous that him and his nephew Lot, uh, Abraham said, you know what? We, we don't need to be you know, fighting over pasture space here. You go ahead. You choose the land you want. I'll take what's left over. And Lot chose all of the Jordan Valley because it was lush and watered and, and beautiful and, and pasture-like. And, and this is the property we're talking about here, the descendants of Lot, the Moabites, and, of course, Abraham was kind of pushed up into the high country, in the hill country. And um, by his own uh, acquisition, um, giving place to, to Lot, allowing Lot to choose first. And uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole thing in there but, that we won't talk about. But, but that's, uh, again, part of the, of the background here. So, so then, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, let, let, actually, I think I, we have that. Let's put that up, uh, Caleb, if you, if you will. Genesis 13, uh, uh, what we have is the verses that immediately follow that. So Lot has made his choice, chose all the, the, the Jordan Valley, and then it says this in Genesis 13. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. This is the promise of the land. And it comes up in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. And it comes up again. It's repeated with uh, Isaac. It's repeated with Jacob. And this is where we're at now today as Israel, as a nation. Abraham has become uh, two and a half million people. And that nation is on the threshold of that promised land. Okay. And um, arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land. I will give it to you. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, is quaking in his boots. So he sends an envoy to this guy named Balaam. And this fellow, Balaam, is a very interesting character. His story occupies several chapters of scripture here. And then... Uh, uh, in, in the book of Numbers, but it's, he also, uh, his, his story comes up in the book of Deuteronomy, and there are different Old Testament passages and some New Testament passages about this guy. And he's an interesting guy. Um, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be looking at some of that. But uh, uh, So we're going we're gonna to meet this fellow Balaam, and, and I, I will tell you that, oh, there, did you guys just slip in just now? Were they here when I was talking about them? No, okay, good. All right, let's go on. It's good to see you guys in, in person. <laughs> you can talk to them after. I'm, I'm going try to try to uh, not uh, keep us too long here this morning, but, but this, is a really, this is a really cool story. You ever heard of the story of Balaam's donkey? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty fascinating thing and uh, with some really cool, uh, some really important lessons for us as well. When we first meet Balaam, we wonder, is this, is this a good guy or not? Like he could, he could be a good guy and first impressions are that he's a good, a good guy and he seems to, to, to know the Lord. And, and, uh, uh, but how many of you know that first impressions can be deceiving? Mm-hmm. I tell you what, all impressions can be deceiving. <laughs> First, second, third, fourth impressions can be deceiving because sometimes what we perceive is not what's really going on. And this is one of those situations where you have some outward uh, evidence of some really good things, but the deeper you dig, the more rotten things become. And it's one of those uh, situations. I have a quote I want to read from you from Gordon Wenham who says this in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary on the book of Numbers, he says it must be remembered, and he's, he's commenting on Balaam when he says this, he says it must be remembered that the biblical writers re rely 
ex we, writers rely comment explicitly. That doesn't make sense. I must have mis misprinted this. Uh, the biblical writers rely explicitly on the character of the actors. The narrator's emotional and moral values are, as a rule, conveyed indirectly by the implicit tenor of the stories. And it's just kind of his way of saying that, that you don't really know. Because you don't really know who this guy is, and you don't know, is this a good guy or not? And that's what we want to know, right? Anytime a, a character comes on the scene, you want to know, okay, is this a good guy or is this a, a bad guy, right? And, uh, and he, he, looks like he, he looks like a good guy. Uh, so, so the story of Balaam, let's read Numbers 22, verse 4 uh, uh, through 14. We'll start at the last part of verse 4. It says, so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the uh, son of Beor at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amat, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now and curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out from the land. Uh, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So when we meet Balaam, he is being propositioned. The king of the Moabites, um, King Balak, has sent an envoy to Balaam with a proposition. And uh, <coughs> they, uh, they want him to come. Can you come and deal with this problem for us? We've got a big problem. We need you to do something for us. We want you to uh, come and curse this people. Because this guy, this guy obviously had a reputation, right? He, it says, uh, we, we know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So can you, uh, can you help us out here? Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam, and they gave us, okay, there's a, there's a hint right there, right? Fees of divination. I was like, ah. Okay, because you know that the, the, the Bible says that divination is an abomination. So there's, there's our first uh, clue that eh, something's not right here, right? Uh, but they came with their, their fees for divination in their hand, verse 7, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, That's Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab. Uh, he sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come and curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning, and he said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Now that's where the story ended. You thought, hey, he's a good guy. Right? He asked the Lord. The Lord said, no. He said, hey, that's whatever the Lord says, that's what I do. So the answer is no. See you later. Uh, but the story doesn't end there. And we don't know what's going on in Balaam's heart, but uh, we have a suspicion something's not right there. Um, for one thing, <coughs> why did he consult the Lord? Was Balaam seriously wanting to do God's will? Or was he thinking about the fee of divination that they brought in their hand? That's the question. Um, either Balaam sent them on their way. Um, maybe, he, maybe he kept checking the window to see if they would come back. You think, well, that's pretty speculative. Well, not, not really. Not, not really, because um, there is a very strong possibility here that this whole thing was a ploy on Balaam's part to see the pots enriched. 
And the reason I say that is because of what falls, okay? Um, and there is a possibility that his uh, checking in with God might have even been, and I hate to say this because I'm really, really colors his, his motives, uh, but it could have been part of uh, try, him trying to enhance his credibility with his customers. Numbers 22, verse 15 through 18 says, Once again Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thank you, honey. <coughs> Thus says uh, Balak, son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you a great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will, that's uh, code talk. <laughs> okay? That, just put dollar signs in there, all right? I will do you a great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though ba Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the com command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Again, that doesn't sound that bad. Um, doesn't say explicitly they offered him more money. Um, but it's there. You know, why else would he bring up the subject of houses full of silver and gold? Verse 22, verse 19. He says to them, but stay the night. I'll, <laughs> I'll see what the Lord says this time. Now, do you suppose that the Lord saying what he said the first time should have been enough? Have you ever done this, by the way? Yeah, stop twisting that. Yeah, sometimes we, uh, I think we, we probably do do this, um, but all of this has to do with the motives of Balaam's heart. All of it has to do with the motives of Balaam's heart. And so it's like, you know, here he is again, going back to God and asking God the same question that he already asked God, and God said, no, send them away. Do not go with them. And uh, the only thing that has changed that I can think of, there's only one thing that is different now than it was the last time. More money. That's the only difference. And, and then the, one of the things about the story is that... Uh, God says in verse uh, 20, he says, go ahead. Go with them. Now, you, you should be kind of squirming right now thinking, ah, <laughs> I don't know, you know. What's going on now, right? Um, verse uh, 21, so Balaam rose in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he went with the princes of Moab. Let's just keep plowing through here so we don't bog down. Uh, let's read verses 20 through 2 through 35. And this is the account of Balaam and his donkey, and it's, uh, it's quite spectacular. It says in verse 22, But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey... And his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the, uh, the road. Uh, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a, with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. You know, you can just picture him saying, stupid donkey, what's wrong with you? Now look at my foot. All banged up. It's all your fault. Now off he goes again. Then the angel of the Lord, verse 26, went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there's no way to turn either to the left or to the right. It's kind of like, you know, God has completely limited the options. There's no way to go but race straight ahead, but there's a problem. 
when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. She just dropped to the ground. And Balaam, this is the third time, his anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. That's not a good thing. Right? His faithful donkey. And the Lord, verse 28, opened the mouth <laughs> of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, so now he's having a conversation with his donkey, and immediately we're wondering who the donkey is. Because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey says back to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, well, no. And then it says in verse 31, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. God opened his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. I'm thinking that would be a very scary sight. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now, I would have killed you and I would have let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will, I will turn back. You think, wow, that's pretty good. I mean, we all make mistakes, right? It's like he's going to make it right here now. Lord, if that's, okay, my eyes have been opened. I'll turn back. And God says to him there, uh, the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're going to, uh, in, a, in a moment's time, we're going to get to read some of the things that Balaam pronounced that day. Uh, some of the, uh, the, the blessings that he pronounced over Israel. But, but this donkey is significant here. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we use the word donkey. The King James uh, refers to her as an ass. Um, and that word has kind of changed its meaning. For whatever reasons, it's changed its meaning. But we are intended from the story to realize that the donkey is a picture for Balaam of his own self. Because just like Balaam is beating his donkey, so Balak is driving uh, Balaam. And just like God put the words in the mouth of the donkey, God's going to put words in Balaam's mouth. And we are meant here to, to draw that parallel. I, I, I believe we are. And you could say the moral of the story is don't be a donkey. Okay? Donkeys are known for their stubbornness. They are known for being obstinate creatures. Now, I've never owned a donkey, so I don't really know this, but that's the reputation. Donkeys have a reputation. And their reputation is for being obstinate and stubborn. And we are meant to draw a parallel here. Of course, we, when we hear donkeys, we think of Shrek, right? You know? Um, but this was a, a female donkey. I don't know if that makes a difference or not. 
when it comes to being obstinate. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, so Balaam goes on his way, and God says, God says to him, you, you go, but you only speak what I give you to speak. So off he goes, Numbers 23, verse 10, is just one phrase from the, um, the uh, words that Balaam speaks. So he, Balaam goes, and he goes to, to Balak, and Balak says, oh, man, why didn't you come when I called you, you know? Um, Balaam says, I'm here now. This, I'm paraphrasing. I'm here now, so let's get it done. But, but I have to tell you, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so Balak takes him up to a high place. And the reason he takes him up to a high place is so that he can see. Now, he doesn't take him up to the highest place because he can't see the whole of the people. He can't see all of Israel. He can only see a part. You know, maybe, maybe it was Balak's way of saying, you know, if he sees them all, then he's just going to, you know, close up shop and go home. But, but anyways, and, and so he takes him up and he says, now, okay, pronounce a curse. And Balaam opens his mouth and instead of a curse coming out, out comes this beautiful blessing. <laughs> and it's, this is just part of it. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Maybe he, he knows he's only seeing about a quarter, right? But let, let me die the death of the upright. Let me end like, the, like his, my end be like his. Remember what God said to uh, Abraham about his descendants being, uh, you know, he said, if you can count the dust of the earth, you'll be able to count your descendants. So this, so he, and Balak, he's like, what? I called you here to curse these people, not to bless them. Come on, we're going somewhere else. So he takes them up a little higher to another mountain, uh, up a little higher so you can see a little bit better, get a little bit different perspective. Maybe this will do it. And so Balaam, he opens his mouth again, and uh, let's just read some of that. Numbers 23, 18, 24, Balaam took up this discourse, and he said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zephor. God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not, he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not, he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, with what hath God wrought? Behold, a people as a lioness rises up as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And uh, <laughs> Balak says, stop, stop, stop. That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. He says, you know, don't bless them or curse them. You just shut up. He's not happy at all, but he says, let's, let's try this again. Let's do this one more time. So he takes them to another place, higher up in the mountains, so he can look out over the people and, and have a whole different view, you know, maybe a different perspective, a different view or something. And Balaam goes and he opens his mouth again. And this is the third time. And this is a bit of what he says in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. It says, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. We've been talking about that, right? Just even the formation would have been impressive. Right? And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse, and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. In other words, wow, wow, and water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. You know if you know this or not, but God made promise of king to Abraham too. 
If you go back to Genesis and read God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God talked not only about uh, blessing them and making them a great nation and giving them a land. He also talked about a coming king. And here, uh, Balaam makes reference to that coming king. God brings him out of Egypt, verse 8, brings him out of Egypt and is for him. There it is again, like the horns of a wild ox, he shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him, who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And the text goes on to say, and Balak was angry. He is angry. And he says to Balaam, basically he says, take your money and go. And Balaam says, I'll, I will go, but, but I have to say this. And out comes another oracle. This is the fourth one. And he says, let me share with you a little bit about what I see in your future. <laughs> and so here it is. Numbers uh, 24, verse 17 to 19. Um, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. I tell you what, this is some of the most beautiful messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Rolling off the tongue of a donkey. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob will exercise dominion and destroy the survivors. These are messianic proph prophecies. And uh, <laughs> which just kind of goes to show that um, you can have the very best theology in the world. But if your heart is not right with God, it won't matter. And that's probably the primary message coming to us from the life of Balaam. God put these words in Balaam's mouth, just like he put words in the mouth of the donkey. But having the right words is not the same as having a changed heart. So what about Balaam's heart? Was it really as bad as I've made, I'm making it out to be? Was it really as problematic? Like, was he really a bad, a bad guy, or was he, was he uh, just a good guy that messed up? Because good guys do mess up, right? Well, it's not the end of the story. It sounds like the end of the story. It says in Numbers 24, verse 25, Balaam rose up, went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Sounds like the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story. Let's see if we can get to the end of the story. Numbers 31, verse 8 says, uh, in, in recounting some of the victories of Israel, it says, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, uh, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, uh, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam the son of Beor, with the sword. Balaam aligned himself with the enemies of God. And when you align yourself with the enemies of God, you make yourself, you make God an adver and your adversary. And the angel of the Lord did tell Balaam that, right? God, he told him that. Um, but there's more, there's more to the story. There's still more to the story. Now, when we come, so the end of 24 says Balaam rose and went back to his place and Balaam also went to his place. Chapter 25, Numbers 25, begins like this. Verses 1 through 3 says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. What's Baal of Peor? Baal was the principal deity of the Canaanites. He was a false god of the people of the land of Canaan. And when you read through this material, over and over again, you read how God warned Israel, whatever you do, whatever you do, 
Do not make the mistake of worshiping the gods of the people of the land. I hate that. God says, I hate that. That is detestable to me. It will be of grave consequence. In verse um, uh, <coughs> let me see here. Mm, I think it's verse, is it verse 9? Yeah, it's verse 9. Uh, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And you might be thinking, you know, here they are. Here, here they are. They're not even in the land yet. And they're already worshiping Baal. This is bad. This is really, 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 really bad. But what does it have to do with Balaam? Well, this is where we really start to see what's really gone on behind the scenes, okay? Um, Numbers 31, verse 16 says, Behold these, uh, speaking of the, uh, uh, the Amorites, or Moabites, Behold these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. What's that saying? Here's, here's what we haven't heard to this, up, to, up to now, okay? Here's the part, okay? Balak wanted Balaam to come and pronounce a curse on Israel. He paid him royally. Balaam said, I can't, I can't do it. God has put the words in my mouth. I, 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 I'd be lying to you. Israel is blessed. God is on their side. And then you know what that stinker did? He couldn't bring a curse on Israel, so he devised a scheme and for Balak... So that Balak could get the people to bring a curse on themselves. You might not know this. You may or you may not know this. But as Christians, the world cannot curse you. They can say all kinds of nasty things about you. But they cannot curse you because there's no real power in their words. However, if we're not careful, we can bring a curse on ourselves. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. And, but Balak was the one, or Balaam was the one who told Balak how to do it. He said, you want to get these guys? I'll tell you how to get these guys. Just, uh, it's, 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 it's noon now. And so I just want to share a couple of quick passages with you. And... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, some of them are, are New Testament passages that really, really shone the light on on Balaam and his uh, motives, the motives of his heart. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty three. Uh, let's go there first. Deuteronomy twenty three, um, verses three to five, says, "No Ammonite or Moabite, those are the two descendants of Lot, right, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Verse 5 says, But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So that's significant. Uh, I mentioned, you know, Micah, Prophet Micah brings up Balaam. Uh, he makes an appearance in the book of Nehemiah. His, his name does, his story does, and so on. And there's one other Old Testament reference, but there's also three New Testament references, and they are significant, starting with this one. Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14. So we're all the way to the book of Revelation now, all right? We're in the book of Numbers, and suddenly, in the book of Revelation, we read this, verse 14 of chapter 2, but I have a few things against you. Which one of the churches is this? What's it say in your Bible? I can't remember. Ephesus? I don't think it's Ephesus. Pergamum? Okay. 
God's uh, right, the, the, uh, the Lord is speaking here through uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He says uh, to, the, to the church at Pergamum, is it? Okay. He says, I have a few things against you. you. And he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. See, there it is right there, spelled right out. Clear, plain as the nose on your face. There it is. Exposing Balaam for the treacherous fraud that he was. And there's a couple of other references. 2 Peter 2.15. Peter commenting on <coughs> some of his, in his day, uh, who... Uh, had, his, according to his comment here in 2 Peter 2.15, were forsaking the right way, and they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Take note of that phrase. He loved gain. <laughs> it's that money, see, for wrongdoing. And then Jude chapter 1, because uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 11 <laughs> Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to uh, Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. This passage lumps Balaam in with Cain and Korah. That's not good company, guys. Right? But not only that, we have that expression again. Balaam's error, which is for the sake of gain. Why would he do that? Balaam, what are you doing, buddy? Why? Why would you do something like that? Well, the Bible says he did it for personal gain. That's why he did it. Personal gain. So we would not classify Balaam as a false prophet because what he said was true. What he did, however, shows that his heart was not right with God. He heard from God, but his heart wasn't right with God. When it became clear that he did not have the power to curse Israel, he provided Balak with an evil strategy to lure Israel and bring Israel uh, to bring a curse upon themselves. So it would be obvious to me that God was not the only voice that Balaam was hearing from. It is very clear that God, that Balaam was hearing from God. But he was also hearing from somebody else. He was hearing from Balak and money talks. But I think he was hearing another voice too. You think? What about us? Do we hear from that other voice? Do we listen to that other voice? I think that the, the, uh, one of the things about this account of Balaam is, is that it brings home to, 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 to me, it, it, it tells me that knowledge in itself is not enough. You can know things. You can even know all the right things. You can have all your theology right bang on. But if your heart is not right with God, that puts you at opposition with God and makes him uh, your adversary. Do you remember? It's interesting. This I'll close. I'll, we'll we'll stop with this. Um, all the way back when uh, Balak's great 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 grandfather Lot made that choice of the land. Remember that? Like we talked about it just a few minutes ago. Why did Lot make the choice that he made? Personal gain. Why do you make the choices you make? Why do I make the choices I make? What are the motives of our hearts? What's really going on? Because you know what? <laughs> we can put on appearances, right? And we all have a tendency to put our best foot forward anyway, right? I, I get that. I understand that. But right down at the core of your, of your being, why do you do what you do? Right? Why do you do 
what you do. Why do I do what I do? Because those choices are an indication of what is in our hearts. And you can have all the right knowledge and you can have the wonderful theology, but if your heart hasn't been changed. And that's where I want to end today is on that question. Have you had your heart changed? Have you allowed God to give you a new heart? Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what is promised. That God will give you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the promise of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in you for all, and with you for all eternity, that, that he will give you a new heart and change the motives of your heart. That's not to say we don't sin. It's not to say we're not tempted by sin. It doesn't say that we make the wrong choices. But it does say at the very core of your being, you don't just do something because God says you have to. You actually want to love God. A new heart. That's the question. Don't be a Balaam. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. <coughs> I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm three, three plus weeks into this cold. It is getting better. At least my nose is not uh, running profusely, constantly. So that's, that's progress. <sighs> you know, when your nose is giving you problems, that's not good. But, but our hearts is a different thing in that. What's the status of your heart today? Are you right with God? Have you allowed him to make you right with him? Have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and asked him to make you new? By the grace that is in Jesus, Lord, would you come into my life, forgive me for my sin, would you make me new? Renew my heart, give me a new heart. Take out the stony heart, Lord. Give me a heart of flesh, a heart that is not stubborn and obstinate, but a heart that is willing and wants to love and serve you. Can we pray that prayer today? If you're here, let's pray together. If you're here today and you've never prayed that prayer before, I would invite you to simply say, Lord, I don't want a stony heart, and I don't want to be a donkey. I don't want to be a Balaam. I want to, um, to love and serve and to you and to know you and I thank you that you've sent your son Jesus Christ so that I can know you and so that I can be forgiven and so that I can have a new heart and I'm asking you Lord to forgive me for my sin I know that I am a sinner your word says that I'm a sinner and I know it full well in my own heart but Lord I'm asking you to forgive my sins and come and cleanse me and make me new and make me to be your son your daughter Lord and I, I claim the promise of your word today that you would do that that you would make me new Thank you for your amazing, incredible grace to, to each of us, Lord, and how you do that. The power of your gospel, the grace and the mercy of God extended to us who do not deserve it. But Lord, you, because you are so great and wonderful, we praise your name for your goodness to us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.